again to the counter vortex with your ranter bill weinberg and uh, we're opening up this evening with uh music of uh, a guy by the name of borjagin chinaleg i hope i'm pronouncing your name correctly borjagin and uh he's uh from inner mongolia in the people's republic of china and what i really like about this uh this cut is that uh, it's exactly the kind of stuff that that we love kind of stuff that I used to play on WBAI when I was producing radio back then, where you're taking some really deep, traditional indigenous music and you're kind of um, bringing it up to date with, uh, you know, a little bit of um, a techno beat. Uh, to me, that's got a really um, exciting and electric sound. Borjagin is uh, living in the United States right now, but very much um, in touch with the, he's living here in New York City where I live. I actually know the guy. And um, he, but he's very much in touch with the struggles of his people in his homeland out in the steppes of Inner Mongolia in the People's Republic of China. And there has not been a lot of coverage about the uh, about the struggle of the of the Mongol people in China. You get news about the Tibetans and increasingly you get news about the Uyghurs off in Xinjiang in the um, in the far west of China. But you get very little news about the um, about the Mongols in Inner Mongolia in the north. And they've also been going through their own struggles. There's been some uh, recent protests over land grabbing, the privatization and enclosure of the traditional communal pasture lands of the Mongol people by um, Chinese uh, industrial corporations and, um, and by the military, by the People's Liberation Army. Um, and there's been actual, uh, you know, actually been uh, some some public protest about this. And I will point out that, um, you know, a protest in an extremely closed society like China means a lot more because it requires more courage uh, than it does in um, uh, a society such of our own, as our own here in the United States, where there's more of a um, uh, they use more of a uh, a tactic of repressive tolerance, as it were, as opposed to just outright repression. So uh, you don't hear very much about the Mongol struggle. You should hear more about it. But um, China itself has actually been in the news over the past week due to um, the changes which have been promulgated by the Chinese Communist Party and rubber stamped by the National People's Congress, essentially enshrining President Xi Jinping as a dictator for life or the new paramount leader, so to speak, the phrase which was uh, bestowed upon Mao Zedong and his immediate successor, Deng Xiaoping. And it seems like uh, once again, there is a um, personalistic 
dictatorship, which is being consolidated in China for the first time since uh, the death of Deng Xiaoping, now a generation ago. And since, uh, you know, the, the immediate aftermath of Deng, you know, there was more of a, um, a bureaucratic party dictatorship in power where basically, you know, there wasn't a paramount leader. There was just a president and he ruled for 10 years and he was followed by another president. Whereas now it appears that, you know, we're moving back towards a uh, more of a, a personalistic dictatorship. And there's been a lot of talk in the media. Um, both, I will point out here in the West and within China itself about how this is um, redolent of Maoism and of, you know, the, uh, the the extreme you know personality cult around around Mao Zedong and the um, uh, Xi's regime is actually intentionally it seems reviving you know, rhetoric and imagery of the Mao era under Xi's leadership the um, Communist Party has actually um, launched a new campaign that they're calling the Mass Line which was. Uh, sort of a um, a key phrase under under Maoism, but um, this is all very. Uh, I would argue, you know, this is just um, on the surface, and what's actually going on in terms of political economy has got absolutely nothing to do with Maoism. It's a uh, mirroring Maoism in terms of a lot of its imagery and rhetoric and the new personality cult which is being established, but in terms of the economic program. Uh, which is being imposed, uh, you could basically say Mao would shit the antithesis of Maoism. Uh, of course, China has been aggressively capitalist since, um, since Deng Xiaoping and since the, um, the so-called revisionists took over, as the Maoists put it. Um, and uh, Xi, in his current power grab, is not reversing any of that, but he, rather he's entrenching it and you have to pay very close attention to the uh, to the media accounts to actually grasp that as a part of these um, sweeping constitutional changes, which are being made now by the by the National People's Congress. Again, just sort of rubber stamping decisions which have already been made by the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Uh, not only are they um, enshrining Xi Jinping as the new paramount leader, but they're also actually instating further economic reforms emphasizing a uh, sort of a, a Reagan-type supply-side formula and um, further market liberalizations. So uh, they're actually going deeper into um, this, the capitalist model rather than retreating from it as a part of these very same reforms which are consolidating power in the hands of Xi Jinping personally as opposed to merely in the hands of the, uh, you know, the party state apparatus. So, um, and this is, uh, again, if you pay close attention to the, uh, to the media coverage, but I mean close attention, not just a cursory review of the headlines. This is immediately obvious. And a most telling juxtaposition is um, that uh, both um, the capitalist media, and I mean the aggressively pro-capitalist, free market, ideological media here in the West, um, are uh, recognizing this fundamental capitalist basis and, you know, deepening of capitalism, which is actually happening during um, Xi's power grab, as well as the um, some of the left dissident media, which um, are serious about, you know, following 
and uh, labor right issue issues of, of labor rights and, and labor struggles in China and loaning some support to um, the striking workers and, and so on. So uh, let's take a look at the um, at the former Forbes magazine, the self-proclaimed capitalist tool is um, decidedly sanguine about the uh, the changes which are happening in China right now. They write in the short term. Nothing has happened because Xi Jinping was a shoe-in for a second five-year term anyway. The second term began this weekend, which was last weekend now. The uh, government scrapped term limits, meaning that he can run again in 2023. The country has two has had two five-year term policies since, um, since the 1990s. But um, Xi forever is not Castro's Cuba, they write. There is an unstoppable culture of capitalism and entrepreneurship in China. Private tech companies have driven much of the new wealth in China, and they give some um, examples of that. Billionaire tech founders Jack Ma and Robin Lee are revered by the government for what they've accomplished. Warren Buffett and hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio are like rock stars in China, a country full of retail investors who like putting money to work in the stock market, just as they like gambling in Macau and Las Vegas. Mainland equity markets are being institutionalized. China is still the largest closed-door economy in the world, but it is opening up at its own pace, and many U.S. investment banks will reap the benefits of that as China lowers entry barriers for foreign banks in the mainland, unquote. So that's what Forbes magazine has to say. So, uh, yeah, right. She forever is not Castro's Cuba, they reassure us. But not because there's any greater political freedom in the People's Republic of China than there is in Cuba, but because there is greater freedom, quote, unquote, for foreign capital. All right. Now, by way of contrast, so that's what Forbes magazine has to say. They're extremely enthused about, uh, or at least... Um, not worried, shall we say, about Xi's power grab. They're very sanguine about the whole thing. Now let's turn to one of my favorite, my, my favorite websites, Chinaworker.info. One of these, um, I would say, dissident left websites, which are um, actually very serious about, uh, about following labor struggles in China and um, loaning some support to, um, to uh, Chinese workers who are struggling for um, elementary rights, such as... Uh, I mean, we can, you know, here here in the West, there's a, uh, you know, we're essentially waging the same struggles. And here in the West, you know, the AFL-CIO and so on are, you know, fairly domesticated. But um, uh, in China, you know, the official trade unions are essentially an arm of the party and an, and an arm of the state. So uh, strikes by, um, by inherently by nature in China mean wildcat strikes. So um, China worker... Info reminds us that no matter how much she may be playing the nostalgic nostalgia for the great helmsman Mao Zedong, his state continues to be a thoroughly capitalist one. And uh, they write about the um, quote unquote furious rubber stamping, which the National People's Congress is doing, uh, given that the party dictatorship has already decided what policies will be adopted. And uh, what kind of people sit in the NPC? the National People's Congress. I quote from ChinaWorker.info, among the 5,130 appointed delegates 
attending the National People's Congress and its sister body, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. There will be 104 dollar billionaires, 45 in the NPC and 59 in the CPPCC. Their total net worth amounts to U.S. $624 billion, or $4 trillion yuan, which is more than double Ireland's GDP. This is the richest parliament in the world by a very large margin. Just like everywhere else in our crisis-ridden capitalist world, the rich are getting richer and doing it faster. The 104 billionaires wielding votes, which they put in quotes because, indeed, it's not really voting so much as it's rubber stamping, um, in Beijing's halls of power this week have increased their combined wealth by almost 20% in the past year as a result of Xi Jinping's policies. Since she took office, their wealth has more than doubled from 100, I'm sorry, from one point. 94 trillion yuan in 2013 to 4 trillion. This is despite the government's pledges to tackle poverty and close the wealth gap. There are no proposals on the NPC agenda for a wealth tax, for nationalizations of industry, for confiscations of millions of empty houses, and other measures to trim the obscene wealth of the billionaires and use the resources for the benefit of ordinary people. No, quite to the contrary. Instead, end quote, instead they are um, pursuing supply-side economic reforms, such as those pursued by Reagan in uh, the 1980s. So um, among them, just uh, by way of example, again, paying close attention, another excellent website, China Labor Bulletin, Notes that a part of the, uh, as a part of the same restructuring, now being rubber-stamped by the NPC, is the um, disbanding of the State Administration of Work Safety, which is essentially China's equivalent of OSHA. Ostensibly, its functions are being merged into a new Emergency Management Department. But the very name, Emergency Management Department, indicates a downgrading of the, uh, the former agency's mission, overseeing work health, worker health and safety, and its subsumation under a body more concerned with national security, state security. So um, here we have what has been called neoliberalism, quote-unquote, in the West, under a system that is completely illiberal, where political freedoms and pluralism are concerned. Quoting from another website, which is actually serious about following events in China from a progressive perspective, Chinese human rights defenders, states in an analysis of Xi's economic agenda, which is essentially unchanged from those of his post-Mao predecessors, except that it's going deeper still into the capitalist model. They write, quote, In the past few decades, this China model has left behind countless people in China, victimized by breakneck growth at the expense of basic protections from discrimination, exploitation, and abuse of power, end quote. So, back to me talking again. This is the context in which we must um, view Xi's repression of labor and displaced workers, 
going on now in China. You may have um, heard about the, uh, in fact, I think on uh, on our first podcast, when we were taking note of um, of waves of protest going on around the world, and at the in the um, the opening weeks of 2018, we noted the um, uh, the extremely rare uh, angry protests in Beijing after um, displaced workers who had um, essentially um, established shanty towns and squatter communities in Beijing um, were um, rousted by the police and evicted and um, and actually held a um, a protest over this, which is a a very rare thing to see in Beijing, especially in Beijing, because that's the seat of the government and that's the, um, the most closely controlled part of China, as you can imagine. And then, of course, there's um, the crackdown on human rights defenders. There's been a, a whole wave over the past year or so of several um, prominent uh, human rights spokespersons and attorneys have been arrested and are um, facing trumped-up charges. And there's one particularly uh, who I want to mention who is being uh, featured prominently on uh, our website, Vortex. Org. This is actually an article which we reprinted from China Law and Policy website, the case of um, Liu Yao, who was a, a human rights attorney in uh, Guangdong in the south, who um, was speaking out on behalf, of, um, on behalf of peasants whose land was being illegally stolen by corrupt bureaucrats to, um, to build a golf course. For the rich, for the new, uh, you know, nouveau riche elite in China. And the particular irony of this, I mean, you know, there's been lots of protests in China over the past several years, um, you know, of uh, traditional villages and peasant communities over the expropriation of their lands, either for industrial development or for real estate development by um, by corrupt bureaucrats. Uh, lots of protests over this, but this, in this case, it was particularly ironic that it was for a golf course because golf is actually banned in China. The government a few years ago declared a, uh, you know, they actually passed a law making it illegal to build golf courses, and this was um, in recognition of the um, of the way golf courses gobble up water to keep the green nice and green year round, even in the dry season. And, uh, you know, it means the depletion of aquifers, and uh, and China is a rapidly aridifying country. So this is a, a really critical issue. So uh, they actually passed a law making it illegal to, to build golf courses in um, China in uh, 2004. But it's going completely unenforced because, you know, the, the, the new wealthy elite want to play golf because it's a global symbol of, um, of wealth and status. So um, uh, Liu, uh, uh, Liu Yao was um, advocating on behalf peacefully advocating on behalf of, um, of peasants in Guangdong who were um, attempting to keep their lands from being usurped for an illegal golf course. Their lands being illegally usurped for an illegal golf course. And uh, for this, um, he is now facing 20 years in prison. You can read all about it. It's right on the uh, front page, both of uh, my website, countervortex.org, as well as uh, China Law and Policy, which um, gave us permission to reprint the article. So... Uh, yeah, so you've got the um, the ongoing repression of labor in the in the factory zones in um, Guangdong and the Pearl River Delta, and you've got the uh, crackdown on displaced workers and squatter communities and so on, and the mass clearances in Beijing. Then you've got the crackdown on human rights defenders. All of this has been escalating under under Xi's rule. Uh, ongoing protests by peasants mobilizing to defend their farms from land grabbing, and then finally, 
you have um, you know ongoing protest and resistance by restive minority ethnicities within the People's Republic, most prominently the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the, uh, the Tibetans. And you hear less about the Mongols, but we should be paying attention to what's going on with the Mongols too. And as I say, just like the, the peasants along the um, Pacific coast in the industrial heartland of China are having their traditional communal lands being expropriated for uh, real estate development and, and, and factories and whatnot. Well, similarly, the, um, the Mongols are having their traditional pasture lands enclosed and, and illegally appropriated, or sometimes with cover of law, um, uh, stolen from them, essentially, out there on the, the steppes of Inner Mongolia. Uh, there's been a, a flurry of news stories recently about the Uyghurs in, um, in Xinjiang, who are a Muslim and Turkic people, uh, because uh, the, the China is really, the Chinese government, I should say, is really, really concerned about um, uh, the possibility of militant Islam taking a hold among the Uyghurs, it seems, and is really imposing dra- draconian police state measures uh, out there in Xinjiang, which is like the most remote part of the People's Republic of China, way, way, way out there in the Western deserts, um, where, uh, you know, there's being, uh, you know, constant video surveillance uh, going on, even in remote villages, and um, mandatory collecting of DNA samples and fingerprints, even just from ordinary villagers, and uh, several, you know, community leaders in, um, in Xinjiang have been, uh, have been arrested merely for um, speaking out against this sort of thing. And uh, then, of course, uh, you know, we're all much more familiar with the, uh, with the Tibetan struggle, which uh, is continuing as well. So, um, and I would argue that uh, one of the reasons that the Chinese state is taking such a, um, a heavy hand with the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Mongols is that they fear that the resistance of these minority ethnicities could actually provide an example to the broad Han masses of China. And what the Chinese state fears the most is any kind of solidarity emerging between the Han majority and the, uh, the Uyghurs and the, and the Tibetans and, and them making Com- common cause, you know, the Han peasants trying to hang on to their lands and the, and, the, and the Han workers being viciously exploited in the factory zones along the coast, making, you know, common cause with the um, uh, indigenous uh, Tibetans and, and Uyghurs in the, in the far interior of China, uh, you know, trying to, um, you know, maintain their regional autonomy. This is something which could seriously threaten the regime if this kind of solidarity were to begin to emerge, which I think uh, explains why, um, why the Chinese state is seemingly counterproductively, because obviously the heavier hand they take with, um, with the Uyghurs, they're just going to turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy that you know, Uyghur separatism or even jihadism could begin to emerge. So obviously it's a completely counterproductive strategy as such you know, majoritarian police state strategies almost inevitably are. Um, so this context reveals Xi's, you know, revival of Maoist nomenclature in the so-called, you know, new mass line campaign as Orwellian in the extreme. This is not Maoism. This is in many ways the opposite of Maoism. Now, you can argue about what Mao actually represented. 
I mean, the Maoists who are still around, there's actually a few Maoists who are still around today, <laughs> like the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party here in New York City. The few Maoists who are still around today think that Mao was, of course, you know, putting socialism in place. Then you've got, uh, you know, sort of um, the... Uh, Cold War, the, the unreconstructed Cold War perspective, which would agree that he was actually, you know, a communist, but, uh, you know, just view it as, you know, mere totalitarianism. And uh, then you have, uh, you know, the, the dissident Marxists of the um, uh, Riots and Ayavskaya and uh, CLR James school, as well as some of the anarchists would argue that um, Maoism actually became in practice state capitalist. Uh, due to having to um, get foreign exchange to stay in power. Uh, there was a uh, increasing reliance on exports in Mao's time, and industries under, um, under state control began to, um, e- even if under state control, began to behave more and more like actual capitalist entities. And today, you know, with the so-called state-owned enterprises in China, that's explicitly the case. There isn't any, um, you know, pretense that they're doing anything other than behaving as, as capitalist entities, even if they actually do remain in state hands. But um, uh, whatever you think that Mao actually represented, it's safe to say that um, his totalitarian methods were, at least in intent, aimed at building socialism. Now, I want to make clear here that I do not support totalitarian methods. You know, I do consider myself a socialist, but I think that um, ultimately any spirit of, you know, what I would consider to be a socialism worth fighting for is utterly betrayed by totalitarian methods. So I am not here to praise Mao Zedong. I am merely here to draw a distinction between Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping, because Mao Zedong was using totalitarian methods, at least in uh, I think in his own mind, in an attempt to build socialism in China, whereas um, since Deng Xiaoping, at least totalitarian methods have been aimed at advancing an ever more savage capitalism in China. You know, I make the case that um, Deng's Tiananmen Square massacre of um, June 1989 can be seen as um, a demonstration into foreign capital of his willingness to use deadly repression for a stable investment climate in China, very much in the style of um, General Pinochet's repression in Chile upon his coup d'etat in 1973, very much aimed at reassuring foreign capital. Now, um, one difference between Deng and Xi is that Deng was trying to, you know, woo foreign capital and woo the West and woo foreign investment. Now China has, uh, I think it's perceived by Xi and his coterie of bureaucrats, it's perceived that China has won enough economic clout that it no longer has to woo the West, but it can actually challenge the West. And this has to do with the uh, more aggressive foreign military posture, which... um, she is pursuing in the um, the brinksmanship in the South China Sea, which is extremely dangerous. But um, Xi's China and Deng's China are equally capitalist, except that Xi's is more capitalist, if anything, going deeper into the capitalist model, as um, as I've stated. So, uh, you know, the new Cold War, which appears to uh, be emerging between the U.S. and China, is unburdened of the ideological baggage 
of the first Cold War. It is a plain old rivalry between capitalist powers. And it's very interesting that the, um, the two groups of people who fail to get this here in the United States and in the West more generally is on one hand, you know, the unreconstructed cold warriors on the right who still want to um, think of China as socialist. And then, you know, people who are, um, uh, you know, the, the utterly deluded elements of the left who are also living in a kind of a cold war time warp. <laughs> not, I will give them credit, not the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party, which is smart enough to hate she at least, but uh, groups like the uh, the Workers' World Party, <clears throat> which is actually hegemonic in uh, you know anti-war politics, certainly here in New York City, you know they still sort of view China as 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 socialist. So um, very interesting that you know this illusion about China still being socialist and having anything to do with the system that Mao crafted um, in terms of political economy is, uh, you know, it's, it's an illusion which you see on the uh, sort of the, the unreconstructed Cold War right and the unreconstructed Cold War left. Very interesting. So, uh, you know, I argue that the, um, there's sort of a, a global divide and conquer game which is going on, which is the essence of the state system, where you can particularly see this, where it's playing out in, um, uh, well, you've got, you know, the elements of the left, which here in the United States, which even if they aren't living in a Cold War time warp, they're just sort of conditioned to support whoever the U.S. appears to oppose. And then you've got uh, uh, the situation in South America, where China, as in Africa, is a sort of in a race with the United States right now for um, control and, you know, carving out spheres of influence. There's a new scramble for Africa going on, just like the old one was between European powers. The new one is between the United States and China. And I would argue that there's also kind of a scramble for South America, which is going on at the moment. And, uh, you know, countries in South America, which have deviated from the U.S. imperial orbit, uh, most prominently Venezuela and Bolivia, are um, uh, looking to China for investment and even military aid and um, ideological support in terms of standing up to the United States. And there's a certain irony here, because I'm particularly in the case of Bolivia, where, uh, you know, Evo Morales is in power, a man who came out of the um, indigenous and campesino struggle. That's how he rose to prominence in Bolivia, was as a, a leader of peasants, and particularly Aymara peasants from the um, Chaparé region of Bolivia and their struggles against, um, against land grabbing, their struggles to, you know, hang on to their traditional lands and their traditional culture against the um, mineral interests and agribusiness and so on. Well, now that he's in power and he's having to, you know, deal with real politic on the global stage, he sees China, in his own words, as a, quote, ideological ally, unquote. And I hope I don't have to... Um, belabor the irony here that um, China, the same government which is doing to its own peasants and indigenous peoples exactly what the military dictatorships in, um, in Bolivia in the orbit of U.S. imperialism had been doing to the Campesinos and the Aymara is now seen 
as an ideological ally by Evo Morales, who came out of the uh, Bolivian Campesino struggle. I hope I don't have to belabor the extreme irony of this. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's mirrored by the fact that the, uh, the Dalai Lama and much of the Tibetan leadership and the Uyghur leadership are looking to the United States and the West as their protectors and allies and the people who are going to advocate on their behalf, sort of taking advantage of the imperial rivalry which is emerging between the government which is oppressing them, the government of Beijing, and the United States. So that's what I mean when I say that the global divide-and-conquer game is the essence of the state system. Because in terms of um, fundamental principle of the rights of small peasants and indigenous peoples, the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Mongols and the Aymara and the Quechua and the Campesinos of South America should be allied against the common enemy, which is the industrial capitalist Leviathan, whether represented by the United States or by China or by Russia or by the European Union. And in fact, there have been cases recently in Peru where in addition to the wave of militant protest that we have seen in Peru over the past several years against U.S.-backed mining companies engaging in land grabs and water grabs from the peasants and polluting their lands and destroying their uh, traditional territories, you have also now begun to see similar militant protests by the, by the campesinos in Peru against Chinese mining projects up in, the, um, up in the Andes. So there you have the beginnings of, I would say, you know, the beginnings of what I call the counter-vortex, where we begin to um, reverse some of the... The, the, the downward spiral towards um, divide and conquer, which is pitting natural allies against each other by geopolitics and the great game on the global stage and actually begin to build solidarity or begin to move things in the direction, at least where solidarity becomes possible. And, uh, you know, you can sort of see on the global stage right now uh, some of the grim prophecies of George Orwell in 1984 falling into place where you essentially you've, you've got the beginnings of three major power blocks on the planet right now under what increasingly look like dictatorships. First, you've got, you know, East Asia, as it were, the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping. Now, she inherited a dictatorship, but um, he's turning it into more of a dictatorship. It's becoming more of a closed system in terms of political freedom at the same time that it's becoming more of an open system in terms of uh, capital and investment, and it's also becoming more of a personalistic dictatorship as, a, as opposed to a party bureaucratic dictatorship. Then you've got, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin in Eurasia, <laughs> in Russia, uh, <clears throat> who um, inherited a sort of a um, quasi-democracy, a, 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 a corrupt and oligarchical quasi-democracy and is rapidly turning it into just a plain old dictatorship. And then you've got <clears throat> Donald Trump here in the United States of America, who um, inherited a, um, 
a, a stultified bourgeois democracy, which has long been dominated by two massive parties, which are um, both completely wedded to corporate power and imperial agendas, but nonetheless is conforming to, you know, the outward forms of bourgeois democracy and seems to be attempting at the very least to turn it into a dictatorship. So uh, this is a, a very frightening moment on the global stage and countering it is going to require real intellectual honesty on our parts and it's going to require real courage and it's going to require real solidarity. So speaking for myself, Despite all of the contradictions, which I am very well aware of because I've just been ranting about them for the past hour, I support the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, I support the Tibetans, and I support the Mongols who are resisting land grabs in the People's Republic of China, resisting erosion of their traditional culture and autonomy in the People's Republic of China. Similarly, I support the Crimean Tartars in the Crimean Peninsula, which has been illegally annexed by Vladimir Putin and the leaders of the Crimean Tartars, who are the Turkic, Muslim, indigenous people of the Crimean Peninsula, are being locked up and their um, autonomous powers, their, their local regional autonomy on the peninsula, which had been recognized by the Ukraine, has now been revoked by Russia. I support the Crimean Tartars and their struggle to regain autonomy and dignity, and to keep their culture alive. And similarly, I support the Standing Rock Sioux in North Dakota in their struggle against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I support the Lakota, who are fighting against the um, uranium interests, which are seeking to mine the Black Hills. And similarly, I support indigenous peoples across the United States of America and its sphere of influence in Latin America, in Mexico and Peru and so on, who are standing up to U.S.-backed industrial land grabs and corporate pillage. I support the Uyghurs. I support the Tibetans. I support the Mongols. I support the Crimean Tartars. I support the Standing Rock Sioux and the Lakota and the Quechua and the Aymara who are opposing U.S. imperialist interests, and I support them all, do you understand, for the same reason. Because the fundamental principles which ally all of these struggles are the same. And it's imperative upon us as activists in the West to understand this and not to be confused by the global divide-and-conquer game and not to be confused by geopolitics and to keep our eye on the ball in terms of fundamental principles. This has been The Counter Vortex with me, Bill Weinberg. You can read about everything that I've been ranting about online at countervortex.org. Tell me what you think. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time. Oh, <laughs> oh,